Luke chapter 8, we're in verses 16 through 21. Thank you, Dave, for reading that. The theme of chapter 8 has been hearing and responding in faith and obedience to God's Word. The chapter opened with Jesus traveling and preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But not everyone receives this good news the way you might expect if you were told that the Son of God would enter creation, He would take on flesh, and He would travel and preach and offer Himself for the salvation of, of sinners. You might expect, if you didn't understand the hardness of the human heart and, and the doctrine of sin, you might expect that everyone would fall down and they would worship Jesus and they would receive Jesus. But that's not what happens. In fact, most in Israel, will end up rejecting Jesus. So Jesus explained in this parable to his disciples how Jesus is either received or he is rejected. He said, some have, have so hardened their hearts that when the seed of the gospel, when the seed of the word or the message concerning Christ goes out, it falls on this stony heart, and, and Satan comes, Jesus said, and he snatches away the seed of that gospel so that it cannot take root. He said there will be others who seem to joyfully respond to the preaching of the gospel. They seem to have an emotional, initial response to Christ, but through trials and tribulation, maybe even persecution, their faith is revealed to be uh, less than genuine. It's inauthentic and they fall away. Still others, he say, are choked out by these thorns that he says are, are the cares and the pleasures and the riches of this world. As they are going along the way, Jesus says, they are, they are drawn away. Their hearts are drawn away from Christ and their faith is choked out. Again, revealing something less than genuine saving faith. But then Jesus said there, there are those who have been given by God's grace the, the secrets of the kingdom of God. They have heard the word, they are holding fast to the word, and they are bearing fruit. In this faith, it perseveres amidst, amidst trial, it perseveres amidst persecution, and, and it perseveres amidst worldly distraction, temptation, and sin. So to truly respond to Christ, to truly know Christ, is to turn to Him in faith, meaning you're throwing yourself completely at His grace and mercy, you're relying on His sacrificial death and His resurrection, and it means that you are bearing fruit that, that demonstrates the veracity of your faith. And so this morning, Jesus continues this theme of hearing and responding to, which means obeying, the Word of God. So we're taking two paragraphs together this morning. They seem to be making the same point. They seem to be driving at the same main message. We see it in verse 18 when Jesus says, Take care then, or take heed, your Bible may say, how you hear. And again in verse 21, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. 
So that's the theme of the passage. Be careful how you hear and respond to. Be careful how you hear and obey God's word. And so there's four points to uh, these passages this morning. Four reasons we should hear and obey God's word. I'll give them to you up front if you're a big note taker, and then we'll walk through them one at a time. The first one is this. We should hear and obey God's word because it is our calling. Number two, we should hear and obey God's word because everything will eventually be revealed at the judgment. Three, we should hear and obey God's word because it brings with it blessing. Number four, we should hear and obey God's word because it identifies us with Christ. So let's look at the first point there in verse 16. We should hear and obey God's word because that is our calling. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now Luke eight sixteen through 19 here is probably one of the more difficult passages that I've come across this point in interpreting in, in all of Luke. And, uh, you know, as you look at that, you might say, well, the, the, image is, the image is perfectly clear, right? The image is not the hard thing. The purpose of lighting a lamp is not to cover the lamp and, and not allow the light to escape. The purpose of lighting a lamp is to illuminate the room. That, that's the easy part. No one, no one lights a lamp and covers it with a jar. No one puts it under a bed, especially considering beds at this time would likely be made of straw. You'd probably light yourself on fire. That the, the, image is, the image is easy. The hard part is identifying where, where is Jesus going with the image? What does Jesus want us to learn from this picture? It'd be tempting to sort of import Matthew's use of this parable into Luke. If you remember, Luke, or Matthew uses this, the famous passage, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and, and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So in Matthew, the light is, is our good deeds. And I think there's a small piece of that in our, in our passage this morning that we'll see. But I don't think that's the main point. We are, we are in the book of Luke. We're not in the book of Matthew. And it would be really easy just to say, well, Matthew tells us exactly what it means. But I don't think that's fair to interpret the, the scriptures that way. We've tried to be careful to search out Luke's intended meaning in his gospel. The gospels don't contradict one another. There aren't contradictions in anywhere in scripture, but Luke and Matthew can use the same parable and have differing emphasis and points. So how is Luke using this illustration? I think the theme, as I've, I argued in the beginning, since the beginning of chapter 8, is hearing and responding in obedience to God's word. So I think given the context, it's best to understand the light here, not as our good deeds, which again, we'll, we'll see that maybe play out in a moment, but the light is the word about Christ. It's, it's the seed. It's, it's a similar point from our passage last week with a different picture, the word about Christ, that he has come into the world to save sinners, the message that changes and transforms, the message that bears fruit in all those who truly receive it. I think that's the light in this passage. In Luke 1, 70 
6 through 79, Jesus is the sunrise, and this is a reference back to Malachi, which we were in Malachi a long time ago. The sunrise who shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus has come into the world. He uniquely, as, as God in the flesh, uniquely reveals God to us. He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God. He teaches us God's will for our lives. And so then to stifle the message, to cover up the light, then would be to not respond to the message. It's akin to rejecting the word of Christ, the message of Christ. And so I think we could summarize it this way. To hear the gospel, to hear the message of Christ, and, and as you go beyond that, the, the will of God, to hear that and to reject it, to harden your heart, is as foolish as lighting a lamp and covering it up. It's like when you actually have your iPhone light on in your pocket. And it's so bright, people can see it. It's embarrassing. It's, it's foolish to have a light on in your, parket, your pocket. It's foolish to light a lamp and then cover it up. And so I think then for the disciples, as they, they, they see the light, they respond to the light, they do indeed have a responsibility. Jesus will ch charge them to go and preach this message to the world. So I think Jesus is, is teaching his disciples a couple things given the, the nature of parables that we talked about last week, I think Jesus is, is pushing his disciples in this way that, that Jesus is saying, you know, I, I have my reasons for using parables to conceal the truth from people who have so hardened their hearts. But the disciples of Christ are not called to that, that ministry. They're not called to the ministry of concealing the truth. They're called to proclaiming the truth, and the truth will either harden or it will draw people to faith in Christ. Remember, Jesus said there's, there's a couple different reasons he is teaching in parables. One is to reveal truth to those whom he, he chooses to give the secrets of the kingdom. Two, for those with hardened hearts, it was to conceal the truth from them. So for the disciples, their job is to take this, this light, this word about Christ, and to proclaim it and to, to preach it, to set it on a stand, so to speak, so that others might be illuminated by the light. And I think there is a sense, given that all throughout Luke, and specifically chapter 8 and in chapter 6, to, to respond to the light, to respond to the message of the gospel, to respond to Christ, is to become a hearer and a doer. So there is a sense in which our actions then, as Matthew says in his gospel, shine so that others may see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. There's a sense in which those who hear, the proper way to hear, if we're going to be careful how we hear, the proper way to, to hear is to do more than just take in information, is to respond to that and to obey Christ. So to put the light on a stand for all to see is to is to live in such a way that it demonstrates the difference that the light makes, that Christ makes in a per person's life when we hear and obey the gospel. We bear fruit, and that fruit is a testimony not only of our own perseverance, not only of our own salvation, but it's testimony to the world. I was reading an article recently. It was a, a friend who had a friend who died in, in Afghanistan, 
This is an example of, uh, of Christians being a light to the world. Several years ago, a terrorist walks into a Christian medical camp where they're providing medical care in the middle of these remote places in Afghanistan and they're providing for the needy and they're preaching the gospel and this man hides a weapon underneath a fake arm bandage as if he needs medical care. He opens up fire and kills many Christians. And later, this terrorist said, I had to do it. If they kept doing what they were doing, the whole country would have become Christians. The light is shining in the darkness. But it, it doesn't have to be missions on, on the front line in one of the most dangerous places in our world, right? Uh, it's tempting to use an illustration like that and just kind of move on. And all of us are sitting here thinking like, well, what about, what about me? I'm not in Afghanistan. I'm not scared to get shot this morning. Well, we can, we can also live in such a way that demonstrates the difference that Christ makes in our heart. And we live in a time and a culture where it's increasingly becoming, in one sense, it's harder to live for Christ, but in another sense, it's easier to see the difference between Christians and non-Christians in our culture today. So we can, we can let our light so shine before men, in a sense, by the way we respond when we are mistreated, whether it's by an employer or, or by the government, if we don't revile, when we are reviled, when we live like Christ, it's evidence, it's a light to the world. It can be a, a rock-steady confidence, not in ourselves, but in God, when, in a world that's gone mad and has been mad since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. It can be a persistent friendship or, or kindness to someone who... Everyone else in this person's world has deserted them, but their friend who knows Christ pursues them. You know, it can be seeking forgiveness when you've sinned against somebody. That, that will shock somebody who doesn't know Christ. Please forgive me. What are you talking about? <laughs> Please forgive me. It can be a calm and unifying presence when everyone else is at each other's throat. All kinds of ways we might demonstrate Christ's likeness to the world. I think in each, each generation, in each geographical location, there's ways that stand out more than others in how we demonstrate the light and stand out. So no one, I don't, I don't want us to get the wrong impression, no one is saved apart from the seed of the gospel. No one is saved apart from hearing the gospel message. But one of the means that God uses to draw people to himself is the consistent witness of his people as they obey him and seek to conform their lives to his will. This is, this is our calling, to receive, to receive the message of the gospel, to receive the word of God, and to be transformed by it. So that as we proclaim Christ and we live consistent with his will, the light might go forth through God's people. So the good news of Jesus Christ is, is the light that illuminates the path to, to God. We are called then to hear this truth in, in, in such a way that we receive this truth and we are changed by this truth. We begin walking in light. It sort of exposes the path. That's what light does. It illuminates, but it also then exposes. It exposes. That's in verse 17. 
For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So as God's word, as, as Christ travels initially and preaches the good news of the kingdom of God, and as he commissions the disciples to go and preach, and, and as, as those disciples and apostles establish churches and, and appoint elders and they begin preaching, and all throughout history uh, there are churches that are preaching this message and Christians who are preaching this message, the, the, the message of God's word goes out. And some see it, some, some see the message, they recognize it for what it is, and they so walk in faith, they turn to Christ, they walk in faith, they walk in righteousness and in obedience to God, and then there are others who rage against the light. Rage against the light. Back in chapter 2, when Simeon was prophesying about Jesus, he said that Jesus would be strongly opposed that he would be a, a sign of opposition and he would be the cause of the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he said, so that. So here's Jesus, he's going to be a sign of opposition, he's going to be the cause of the fall and rising of many in Israel. So that the hearts of many will be revealed. Their hearts are revealed by the way they respond to Christ. A person's acceptance or rejection of the light, exposes their heart. And it will be seen in crystal clear clarity on the day of judgment. All will be laid bare. Because the light not only illuminates, it exposes. One commentator sums it up this way. Here's the warning. God's standard, God's word, God's will, will be maintained, revealed, and executed. So beware. So be careful how you respond to the message. So this, this light, the message about Christ, the will of God, the word of God even, it forms the standard by which we will be judged by Jesus. Those who have come to Christ are, are vindicated as those who are resting on the righteousness of Jesus and they've sought to, though imperfectly, in response to this grace, live in obedience to the Lord. But the light exposes others who have heard this message and not responded. Or, as we saw in the parable of the soils, they looked as if they responded, but eventually fell away. See, Jesus, the one who is proclaiming this, this standard, Jesus is the fair and impartial judge. He is the fair and impartial judge. And he's a witness against us. We are exposed before him. You know, I keep finding myself thinking about that, that wording in, in Malachi where it says Jesus will be a swift witness against us. He will be a swift witness against us. And, and that word doesn't just mean fast, you know, it's not like the judgment will come fast and there are warnings about that. It means, it means you're quick at something because you're an expert at it. You're quick at something because you're an expert. If you've seen somebody lay tile that's really good at it, they're, they're swift. If you see me lay tile, it will take months and still look bad. 
Jesus is the expert witness because he knows the innermost thoughts of every person. He knows the works done in secret. He is the all-knowing, all-present, and therefore infallible witness against us. But for the ones who have come to Christ, he's also our advocate. He is our advocate. What good news for you this morning that the one who is the witness and the one who is the judge is also your advocate. He's also your defense attorney. Imagine the scene where you stand before Christ and here's the judge and the judge says, hold on one second, I need to come down and he gets behind the defense desk, offers the defense of his own righteousness for you and says, now let me take my place back on the throne. The proclamation is not guilty. Well done, my good and faithful servants. It's in light of this then, the warning don't reject the light. Don't reject this good news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners, that he will advocate for you before the throne of God. It's in light of this that we understand the warning in verse 18. Then therefore, be careful how you hear. Be careful how you hear the word of God. We are called to receive and obey the word of God. And eventually all will be judged according to this word. And third, we should hear and obey God's word because it brings with it blessing. Look there in verse 18. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So if we're right in in thinking that Jesus is driving home one big point from verse 1 all the way through 21, we might think about this in in terms of the four soils. And and I'm convinced that that's what Jesus is doing here. A similar truth with a different picture. Then those who have, he says, those who have will be given more. Those who have are those who are the good soil, those who have received the message of Christ. Those who have heard, they've responded, they're holding fast, they're persevering through trials, they've come to Jesus through humility, and they're bearing fruit. Those are the ones who have. To those who have, more will be given. To those who, who come to the light, more light will be given. Coming to Christ is like receiving the keys to the city, so to speak. Our eyes are opened. And we begin to see more and more truth over the course of our life into God's will and God's ways. That's what Paul's arguing, I think, in 1 Corinthians 2. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. If you drop down to verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. By the power of God's Spirit who works in His people, as we submit ourselves more and more to God's Word, we're given more and more insight and more and more fruit in obedience. Proverbs 9.9 says this, Give instruction to a wise man, and he will become still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So maybe this week, as you, as you set out to study the Word or, or you think about Scripture, I would encourage you 
to first do that regularly, engage with the Bible. We are incredibly blessed to live in a time where you can have 17 translations on your shelf. As you engage regularly in Scripture, perhaps your prayer this week will be, Lord, show me how I can live consistent with this word. May God grant us to align our lives with what we know to be true. The reality is most of us are educated well beyond our level of, of obedience. And so we're, we're praying, Lord, help my life to align with what I know to be true from Scripture. Use your word to transform my heart. May you give me deeper insight into who you are and, and what your will is and, and your character and your person and your glory. And as we do, we move into greater clarity about who God is and what he intends for us. And like Isaiah, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6 last week. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord clearly for the first time, he saw himself clearly. We see ourselves more clearly as we peer into the Word of God and we begin to understand the distinction between me as a created sinful person and God who is the holy and righteous Creator. And we are humbled before Him. We see that we're designed not to fulfill the lusts of our own flesh, not to fulfill my own desires, but to live and to worship God alone. And as an image bearer of God, I'm called to be like Jesus then, as he is the perfect image of the invisible God. So as we, as we grow in Christ, we're really just becoming more aligned to what God intended from the beginning, or you could say God's reality, which is the only reality that exists. None of us have it all figured out. We, we have the book, we have, we have the, the answers, but we all fall short, and so we seek to grow in our knowledge and in our obedience to God's Word. As we submit ourselves to the Word, there's, there's blessing. It's not wealth that's promised to us. It's not prosperity that's promised to, it, to us. It's not health that's promised to us. That's, that's heresy. But there's this greater fruit over time and ultimately rewarded with eternal life with Christ. But to the one who rejects the light or the three soils that don't bear Fruit To the one who rejects the light, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away. These seeds, it was snatched away by Satan. There was no fruit and eventually no, no crop. So to reject the light is to, is to harden your heart. It's to move into greater and greater darkness. It's to fail to see reality. As your perception, the Bible says the unbelievers darkened in their understanding. It's to be self-deceived as we reject God's plan and God's order for this world and begin to rely more and more on our own wisdom and on the wisdom of this world. So, so what's, what's the application? And the application is today matters. Today matters. We are not neutral. As you hear the word of God, we are not neutral in that. We are either hardening our hearts and moving further and further away from Christ, or we've come to the light and we seek to be conformed further and further, further to Christ. There's no standing still. There's no drifting into 
Christ-likeness. There's no cruise control. We don't drift into faithfulness. That's why we've been giving this warning for two weeks now. Do not harden your hearts. If today you hear God speak, the author of Hebrews says, do not harden your hearts. Do not come to church week in and week out and reject the message of the gospel. You lose everything. Even what you think you have is taken from you. Lastly then, point number four, we should hear and obey God's word because it identifies us with Christ. Look in verses 19 through 21. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So while the crowd continues to grow, Jesus' family gets wind, like so many others, that he's in the area. He's traveling around Galilee. Hey, Jesus is over here. Let's go, let's go see him. The other gospels inform us that his family's not completely sold on the fact that he is the Messiah. They've, they're concerned that Jesus has lost his mind. Jeff used that old C.S. Lewis, Lord, liar, and lunatic recently in a sermon. His brothers chose lunatic. And so they thought they were protecting Jesus from himself. And, and here in this text, we get a sense of how large this crowd has grown. It's pretty amazing to consider that the family of Jesus comes, but the crowd is so large, it's so dense that they cannot get to Jesus. I mean, if my brother and my mom walked in the back door... I'd be like, there they are. There's a big aisle right here. You can come down and deliver your message. But this crowd is so large, it's so dense that they can't even get to him. So they have to send a message to him. And Jesus then shocks the crowd in verse 21. When he receives the message, your mother and your brothers are desiring to, to see you, Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. They hear it, and they do it. Now, don't misunderstand the point of this passage. Jesus isn't hostile to his family. Jesus isn't undermining the importance of family. The Bible commands children to honor their mother and their father because it's the first, uh, it's the first commandment with a promise. And children are called to do that by listening and obeying to mom and dad. Parents are called to parent in such a way that they don't provoke their children to anger. I, I think that is parenting in such a way that your child sees no other option but to rebel. Because we have been so heavy-handed in the way that we parent. Now, it doesn't mean every child that rebels has is, is, um, been provoked to anger, but I think that's what that means. Husbands are called to lovingly lead and to sacrifice for their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. Peter tells wives to submit to their own husbands. It's not every woman submit to every man. It's wives submit to your own husbands. Families, in the New Testament instruction to churches and how to care for widows, families are the first line of defense. Ask the family to take care of the widow, and if, if they won't, 
the church can uh, step in. The family is such an important part of God's plan for making disciples and for caring for one another. So I want to be careful to emphasize that Jesus isn't undermining any of these relationships. What he's doing is prioritizing commitment to himself and identification with those who hear and respond to the word of God. Jesus isn't, again, being hostile to his family. It reminds me of Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is teaching and, and Mary's like, what are you doing? How come you ran away? And he says, I must be about my father's business. I must be in my father's house. He wasn't being rude or sinful towards his parents. Instead, he's talking about a matter of commitment or priority. Jesus' priority is not living life to please his family. And likewise, our primary commitment then is to Christ, is to be a hearer and a doer. So instead of seeing this as downplaying, downgrading our family, or escaping some kind of commitment that I should have to my family, we might think of it this way. You know how important family is, right? Jesus takes priority. Jesus takes priority. He is that glorious. He is that worthy. He is that good. So we're not wiggling out of these responsibilities. A wife submits to her husband insofar as he isn't contradicting Christ. A child obeys mom and dad insofar as mom and dad aren't asking the child to disobey Christ. Jesus takes first priority, and Jesus identifies with those who come to him in faith and are hearers and doers of his message, his word. My family are those, he says, who truly hear. Who truly hear. So there's this family resemblance. Then we become hearers and doers. We become like our brother Jesus. There's a family resemblance. It's those who obey the will of God, who, who then resemble Christ. It's... It recalls Luke chapter 6. The wise builder is the one who comes to Christ, hears the word, and does it. The foolish person Jesus looks at and says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I told you? It's the doers of the word who, are, who bear the family resemblance. And Christ says, These are my family." These are my family. It's amazing that Jesus' own biological family were not given some kind of immediate pass to salvation. They too had to come to Christ in humility, in faith, and receive Him as Lord and Savior. Each of us needs to come to Christ on our, on our, on our own. Of course, it's by God's work of the Holy Spirit as He calls people to Himself. What I'm saying is, He's made this possible through his death and resurrection and taking the wrath for our sins, and we don't get in through some kind of biological connection. We come to Christ by faith and receive the forgiveness of sins. I think there's also a ton of hope in Jesus' words here for those who are aware of their past. We talked about the sinful lady from Luke 7 a few weeks ago. 
And for those of us who are, are broken by our, our past sin, and we all should be, but some feel that weight more than others, there's great, uh, there's great hope in this text that Jesus is an equal opportunity Lord in this sense. It isn't those with a specific pedigree that get to be the family of Jesus. It's not those with a specific background, like you were, you were pretty good before you came to Christ, so you get to be the family of Jesus. Everyone else gets to be kind of on the outside looking in. So you say, man, my, my past is so checkered with, with sin. What about me? Well, it's, it's good news because your past does not determine your relationship to Jesus. It's, it's your response to the message of the gospel. It's your response to Christ. All who come to Christ are welcomed into the family. All who come to him are welcomed into the family. And then also, we identify with Christ but then we identify with one another. And so there's a ton of hope in this passage for those who maybe don't have a mother or a father in Christ. Maybe they don't have brothers or sisters or they wish they could be a, a, a parent. You know, in some, in some countries, not often in our country, but maybe it happens on occasion, people are disowned by their families for coming to Christ. But in our context... It might look a little bit different where you didn't have a, a, a mom and dad that loved Christ and brought you up to love Christ, or maybe you're living far away from your family. Maybe you've got a great family, but you are separated from them by distance. You didn't have a mother or a father who discipled you. You didn't have brothers or sisters who come alongside you and encourage you. There, there's great hope for you this morning because in Christ you receive a new family. In Christ you receive a family. It's called the church. And here, in the, in the church, in the body of Christ, you might find an older man or an older woman who would love to be a sort of mentor, even we might call a, a spiritual father or mother, if you, would, if you would encourage that sort of relationship. If you're younger, find somebody older than you. If you don't have parents that love Christ, find someone that, that can mentor and disciple you. And, and if you're older and you've been following Christ for some time, you, you don't have to be passive in that. I've benefited so much in God's grace to me by men who sought me out and said, let me, let me walk with you and show you what it is to love Christ. Let me show you what it is to be generous. Let me show you what it is to do the hard work of leading your family. Let me show you what it is to serve the church. In the church you might also find brothers and sisters who want to come alongside you and encourage you and love you. A passage that I love and cite often is in Matthew 19, 29. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In this life you receive a hundredfold. If your family disowns you for following Christ, you're given a hundred family members in the church. What a gift it is. What a grace it is to identify with Christ and to be in a body of Christ full of people who likewise identify with Him. So take care then how you hear. Some we've seen here with an obstinate heart. You might picture this person as you're preaching and they have their ears plugged with their hands like a child might do to their parents. We saw that in Isaiah last week. That was Israel. They were obstinate. They were hardened. Some are curious 
hearers. They come to see what all the fuss is about. They came out because there's a crowd. They're curious about this person, Jesus, they've heard. Benjamin Franklin, who was not a believer, would famously come out and hear the preaching of the evangelist George Whitfield. And Whitfield even, even called him personally to respond to faith in Christ. But by Franklin's own admission, he says, I never gave Whitfield the pleasure of knowing that his prayers were, were heard. He was curious. He liked Whitfield. But he never responded to the gospel. Some in Jesus' day, and it's true in our day, they hear so that they might find fault. They hear so they might find fault. There's people that search the scriptures daily, not in order to know God, but in order to seek to disprove him or to hate him. The Pharisees were masters of this. The scribes and Pharisees, the lawyers, they loved to hear Jesus to try to try to wrap him up in some controversy. So with all the wrong ways to hear God's word, we should ask God for his grace. That when the gospel goes forth, may we hear with faith. Lord, cause my heart to gladly receive your word instead of resist it, the way my flesh so often desires to resist it. Help me, Lord, to move beyond intellectual assent to deep-rooted trust in God that begins to shape the way that I think and the way that I live. We should also hear with a prepared heart. We should, we should plead that God would give us a heart of faith. But we should listen to the Word with a prepared heart, whether it's your time in the in devotions or whether it's before we gather on a Sunday morning. Sunday mornings can be hard, especially with, if you have young children. It's yelling and screaming at the children to get out the door because we've got to get to church on time and worship the Lord. <laughs> but we can come with a prepared heart. We can slow down. I know families in this church who read the text that's going to be preached. They read it on Saturday night, the night before, to begin to prepare their hearts for, for uh, understanding the Word. You can pray on your way into the church. Lord, prepare my heart to, to hear and to receive, to be a hearer and a doer. And so we, we plead with God for a heart of faith. We plead with Him for a prepared heart, and we, sh we pray that he would be kind to us in that way. Our prayer is, God, give me a believing heart that hears your word with a sincere desire to know you, to see you more clearly, and as I see you more clearly, to love you more deeply, and therefore to obey you more faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, there may be some who have hardened their hearts. We pray that you'd be gracious to them. Give them a heart of flesh, that they may see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, we pray that we would continue to dive into your word, to be transformed by it, to be changed by it, that your spirit would motivate us and prompt us, give us the will and desire to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen.